Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We are coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. Common Dreams reports massive betrayal. Biden cuts deal with McConnell to nominate anti-abortion judge. At a time when we're fighting to protect human rights, this is a complete slap in the face, according to Common Dreams. This is according to the Louisville Courier-Journal. Biden has agreed to nominate Republican attorney Chad Meredith once there's a federal court vacancy in Kentucky where abortion was outlawed immediately following the Supreme Court ruling in Dobbs v. Jackson. In exchange, McConnell has purportedly agreed not to obstruct the president's future judicial nominations. Talk about the okey-doke. We might call this the the wimpy compromise. I will gladly pay you Tuesday for a hamburger today. (laughs) For insight, let's turn to our first guest. She's the editor and senior columnist at Black Agenda Report and author of Prejudential, Black America and the Presidents, Margaret Kimberly. As always, Margaret, welcome back. Thank you so much. I will say again, I will gladly pay you Tuesday for a hamburger today. Margaret, what in the world is this? It's the Democrats doing what they usually do. And, you know, Joe Biden was in the Senate for many years. All these people he has uh, long-term relationships with. And I think that's how he still sees the world as uh, deal-making with uh, colleagues. But in, in a bigger sense, it's how the Democratic Party operates. So we can say that they don't have a backbone or it's the okie doke. We can say any number of things, but it's how they do business. They are not serious about standing up for their people. The Republicans, on the other hand, are. So uh, in the wake of Roe v. Wade, if it wasn't clear before, it's clear now. If you're a Republican, you belong to a party that is serious about delivering for you. They give money, they give help, they amplify the right-wing message. And the Democrats uh, also have a right-wing reality, but they pretend. And we see this play out time and time again. And we're just seeing the latest iteration of what it is they usually do. So Joe Biden has said in response to the Dobbs v. Jackson uh, decision that Roe is on the ballot in the midterms and Roe is on the ballot in, in 2024. That's his that's his rallying cry. And he then turns around and greases the skids for the next <laughs> Supreme Court, and I know this isn't a Supreme Court position, but this is one way you get to the court is through these lower court positions. So the broad sketch of the agreement was confirmed yesterday by the office of Representative John Yarmuth, a Democrat from Kentucky who voiced opposition to any deal to elevate Meredith to a lifetime post on the federal judiciary. Again, Margaret, this is uh, Joe Biden. What are you doing? 
He's, he's doing what he's done his entire political career. Lest we forget, you know, um, Obama chose him as his running mate because he was more conservative. Mm-hmm. And Obama was seen as a progressive. He wasn't, of course. So uh, he needed someone with these... Uh, uh, bona fides. Yes, bona fides, thank you. Hawkish, neoliberal uh, bona fides. And this is what we... Uh, Got and this and by the way, Biden was chair of the Judiciary Committee. So, when there was a Republican in the White House, he played a leading role in all of this deal making. But I, I think it's important for people to understand this is where the treachery begins. And Democrats have been told, what are Democrats told if they don't like the presidential candidate? Well, you have to protect the federal judiciary. You've got to vote for Democrats. And it doesn't matter if they get in or they don't get in. This is uh, what we get. And I'm hoping that people just remember it. This is what the Democrats do. These people who you're hanging on to for dear life, like they're a, you know, a lifeboat in the ocean, they will actually claw your fingers off the lifeboat the first chance they get. And so if, if I guess if Joe Biden calls this uh, deal making on the corner, we call this hustling backwards because this, this is ooh. or being hustled. Yes, or, or being yeah, or being hustled. Uh, anti-abortion lawmakers want to block patients from crossing state lines. Some advocacy groups and their allies are crafting legislative language that could be adopted in Republican-led state capitals. Several national anti-abortion groups and their allies in Republican-led state legislatures are advancing plans to stop people in states where abortion is banned from seeking the procedure elsewhere. And what they're trying to do is allow private citizens to sue anyone who helps a resident of a state that has banned abortion from terminating a pregnancy outside of that state. Uh, Margaret, this says a few things to me. One, and this is not a, a new revelation, but I think it's important for people to, to, to understand this. All of these things were already in the works. This has been the game plan for a very, very long time. And t- to many who thought that there was hope with, with Roe, as Donald Trump was putting this court together, they were asleep at the wheel because this, all of this is one package, one game plan, the elements of which they now are just going to put in place, one, two, three, four. And you've got Clarence Thomas saying, we're basically going to look at everything, all the decisions that were based on a right to privacy. Yes, it's, um, you know, and they can do it because they this is the law they passed in Texas, which the court upheld. Um, and so they can do this across the country. There's nothing to stop them. And let's look at the depth of uh, the disaster that the Democratic Party has brought on the country. They allowed Republicans to take over state after state. Democrats lost more than a thousand seats across the country when Obama was in the White House. But most Democrats don't understand the importance of fighting for everything, which mm-hmm. Republicans do. So they make it possible. There are there are only 16 states now out of 50 that provide an absolute right to uh, abortion access. So that means more than 30 do not. And that is a direct result of just giving up these states. And I think... I think Democratic voters have to learn 
um, have to have to learn civics. They have to learn because their party's not certainly doesn't uh, uh, want them to know the the uh, importance of fighting for so-called down ballot races. There's no, there's no down ballot race. You need to win them all. But um, uh, Democrats, with their uh, and their corruption and their desire to just cut deals with these people who otherwise we're told are so terrible and so evil, have brought us to this point. So people need to pay as much attention, perhaps even more attention, to their state legislative races. Uh, and they have to understand the limits of electoral politics. And frankly, if you're a Democrat... You have to understand that your party is not going to do what you want and you have to act independently of them. I think it was Howard Dean. I mean, we'd have to go back, uh, I, I think, back to Howard Dean in around 2008 or 2009 when he was chair of the DNC. He had a 50 state strategy and he, uh, Howard Dean was fighting every race out there and was showing a modicum of success. And then they seemed to, uh, once he once he lost his bid for the White House, they seemed to just dump his strategy altogether. Well, it's a strategy they don't want. It's a strategy that stands in their way. You know, the Democrats are the obstacle. I think, you know, I know this sounds very harsh, but uh, people who are progressive, who are on the left, or who just want things most people want, like abortion to be to remain legal, we have to see this party is our enemy. They're not our friends. And we couldn't do any worse if we just uh if well I've already left, if everyone left in mass. How could how could we be any worse off? They did nothing after the Supreme Court eviscerated the Voting Rights Act, which is another thing that allows them to do what they want, redrawing district lines, gerrymandering, uh, so that even if Republicans get fewer votes, they get more seats in the state house and in Congress. All of these things are important, every single one of them. But um, unfortunately, there's one party that fights for their people that's truly, honestly right-wing. The other is really also right-wing in a slightly different way, but they know no one will vote for them if they're honest and just say so. So just look at their actions and you see where they have brought us. The Texas Attorney General says he would defend sodomy law if Supreme Court revisits ruling. This is another example of things that were based upon the the right to privacy. Clarence Thomas was very clear in in saying that the high court could review other precedents that may be deemed demonstrably erroneous. I've been asking this question as well. I know that John Roberts is the uh, chief justice, but has this really become the Thomas court? Well, you know, let's, uh, it, it could be. I mean, he's the, I, I believe he's the longest serving of all the justices yes, he now, is. is he not? Yes, oh, he is. Okay. And uh, so that gives him obvious uh, power. He's clearly aligned with the right wing. He's clearly aligned with those conservatives in the Senate. Uh, so, yes, it could, in fact, be uh, the Thomas Court. And that is a, a great tragedy that, you know, and I'm thinking now just as uh, uh, as we're talking about this, about uh, all the damage that was done when Obama said, 
uh, passing the Freedom of the Reproductive Freedom Act. I'm sorry if I'm getting the name wrong, was not his highest priority. It was not a priority at all. And he could have gotten it done. He had the so-called veto-proof majority in the Senate. It could have been done, but he didn't care, and neither did other Democrats. Then their assumption that Hillary was going to win, so they um, he doesn't uh, uh, do the uh, recess uh, appointment to get someone in, so they lose the Senate. So, um, you know, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg won't step down to her mm-hmm. eternal shame. Um, then there's no recess appointment. It's, it was because they thought Hillary's going to win. And uh, the damage that they've done is just tremendous. And all they have to defend themselves is more uh, propaganda, which unfortunately a lot of people still fall for. In Common Dreams has a piece, are Democrats really clueless about impending election doom? The party seems to have nothing but contempt for its base by never delivering except incrementally on campaign promises, even when they have the votes, something the Republicans can't be accused of. Margaret Kimberly. Well, yeah, they I mean, they're not uh, they're not stupid. They're not dupes. They're not inept. They're just very corrupt. And right now they're hoping that they, you know, every speech Biden gives, he talks about Vladimir Putin, Putin's price hike. Putin is I'm like, is Putin the president of the United States? I don't understand. So this is their hope that they can uh, 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 push Ukraine or anything else other than the issues that matter to people, and it just isn't going to fly. And they have, I, I would call it a refusal. They have refused to act on what people want. So let's say you can't get Build Back Better uh, passed, fine. Do a Hail Mary and uh, relieve student loan debt. Even if it's overturned later, do it. It's the kind of thing that people need to see uh, to know that uh, you're in their corner and mm-hmm. to get them to come out and vote. But uh, it's a combination of corruption and wishful thinking and thinking, not being able to think outside of the Washington bubble. Everybody's not like Joe Biden cutting deals with Republicans. People came out and he, Biden won by a huge margin. Um, uh, in expectation of seeing the things they wanted to get done. And then there are the lies. Mm-hmm. If you elect these people, you'll get $2,000 stimulus, which was $600 short. I mean, I could go on with the things that they said uh, would happen if they can just get a majority, and they come back with the same thing. Well, we need more people in to do what? To see the same thing happen again? Margaret Kimberly. As always, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate that analysis. Look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. back and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. There is a great piece in antiwar.com entitled NATO Scribes versus Russian Artillery and Rockets. Incongruity was the hallmark of the extraordinary NATO summit just concluded in Madrid. NATO 
offered bluster and promised muster, more troops against its, quote, most significant and direct threat, end quote, Russia. Meanwhile, Russian cauldron maneuvers in Donbass methodically destroyed or enveloped major units of Kiev's army, further strengthening Russia's position there. Well, what does all of this translate to? For insight, let's turn to our next guest. He works with Tell the Word, the publishing arm of the Ecumenical Church of the Savior in inner city Washington. And he was a CIA analyst for 27 years. He's on the steering committee of Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity. And he's the author of this piece, Ray McGovern. As always, Ray, welcome back. Thank you, Wilmer. I'm going to read these first two paragraphs. Those of realistic and compassionate bent can but harbor hope that before there is only a cadaver of Ukraine left to defend, Kiev sees the handwriting on the wall and cries uncle, despite what they are hearing from an Uncle Sam. He seems to have a remarkable tolerance for carnage in Ukraine. As for NATO bluster, it was one for all and all for one, as if Dumas composed yet another swashbuckling adventure meme for the 30 musketeers. Part of the U.S. muster of troops is destined for Poland, where President Biden says the U.S. is establishing a permanent headquarters. Ray, you clearly have laid out very colorfully these two different visions of reality. How can they be so blind? Well, Thanks for asking. Um, that's, why, <laughs> that's why I started out with the word incongruity. Uh, you know, with all this bluster, with the uh, New York Times and others saying this is a new muscular, muscular attitude toward Russia, which is now uh, codified as, quote, the most significant and direct threat, end quote, the China just being a challenge. Uh, you know, they're taking on both countries, uh, flexing their muscles, so to speak, while the Russians are taking over the part of Ukraine that they set out to take over. Uh, the Donbass is falling. Uh, Ukrainian troops are retreating, and those who don't retreat are being enveloped and captured in what the Russians call a cauldron tactic. You could imagine what that is. And all the while, um, the U.S. is saying, no, we're going to supply very fa fancy, sophisticated weaponry. And, you know, the, the implication here is that this thing will go on for a very long time, uh, that they will fight to the last Ukrainian, as someone once said. And, you know, that's, that's not only impractical that's damn that's it damn immoral if i can use those two words together the thing that uh, came out in today's news was that the head of national intelligence april haynes uh talked to uh, to a group uh, two days ago mm -hmm. and, you know this is the she's the head of all intelligence and she started out apparently saying that uh, ah, Putin still wants to seize most of Ukraine. Well, who told you that? Um, who, who? She got a spy in the Kremlin? I don't think so. That would be the first one I've seen in the Kremlin. And so she's talking about she knows what Putin wants to do. 
she says that uh, this is going to grind on this battle for an extended period of time. The picture is, quote, grim and Russia's attitude toward the West is hardening, end quote. And the commentator here, uh, Reuters, I guess it is, says that her comments suggest that billions of dollars in modern arms being supplied by the U.S. and other countries uh, may not give the Ukrainians the ability to turn the tide against Russia any time soon. Well, uh, <laughs> anytime soon or ever, you know, these people have to look at a map and see who give, who has the advantage in in geography as men, as well as other things. So the grind on the grind on. Who does that suit? Well, it only suits those who make profit to profiteer on arms making and arms sales. It suits those who hate the Russians. And so it's those who, who want to make uh, Putin into the devil incarnate after five years of painting him so uh, by virtue of this campaign called Russiagate. So it's a very grim, she's right about that. It's a grim outlook. And as I'm saying here, if even Zelensky says, whoop, I got very few troops left. I want to cry uncle, or at least I want to work out the, the best deal I can get under these circumstances. There's a, there's a real question that Uncle Sam will say, no, no, fight on. Uh, the, the real events, the artillery is coming online, fight on. So it's a mess, and it's a, a morally indefensible mess, in my view. You have a segment in your piece, Lots of Theories, No Evidence, and you write, I might note that in all of Putin's public statements during the months leading up to the war, there's not a scintilla of evidence that he was contemplating conquering Ukraine. One of the things I find very interesting in a lot of the so-called analysis or the rhetoric that we hear are a lot of projections, a lot of statements, uh, a lot of summations that have zero evidence to support them. They all come out of this echo chamber. Yeah. Uh, Wilmer, it's, it's really, I used this uh, quote from uh, uh, a fellow I don't admire very much. It's called, he's called Rudy Giuliani. <laughs> and uh, some of you who have watched the hearings there for the January 6th fracas, remember that um, the, the folks out in Arizona who were counting the votes honestly were told, no, 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 there's a falsification. There's a lot of, uh, there's a terrible, it's terrible falsification here. It's, uh, and so, uh, actually, there's a speaker of the Arizona House says, well, uh, Rudy, give me some evidence. We'll look into it. And uh, <laughs> so the, the uh, Congress people said, well, what do you say? And they, they said, well, you know, we don't know if he was kidding or not, but what he said was this. He says, uh, uh, we have lots of theories, mm -hmm. but no evidence. Now, I thought that would apply to a lot of things, including theories about what Putin had in mind and why he did what he did. What's becoming clear to me, at least, is uh, I think I pretty much know why he did what he did. Number one, uh, because uh, the NATO-trained forces, which were far better than anyone realized, in Ukraine were ready to invade the Russian-speaking part 
of the Donbass, that is the uh, republics of uh, Donetsk and Lugansk, they already do that. So in a way, this was preemptive. But more important, uh, I think Putin's major concern has to do with the emplacement of missilery uh, in places like Romania, where they already are, and places like Poland, where they're almost finished being emplaced. And he wanted to keep them out of Ukraine. Now, why? Well, the answer to that is pretty simple. You put some of these sophisticated hypersonic missiles, or even just cruise missiles, in bases uh, on the Russian border, and that gives Mr. Putin, by his own admission, five to seven minutes to decide whether to blow up the rest of the world. <laughs> now, that sounds crazy, right? But but it happens to reflect reality. Mm-hmm. They can Moscow, they can reach the ICM, ICBM force out there in, in the western part of the, in northern part of, the, uh, of Russia uh, within five to seven minutes. Now, if I were Putin, I wouldn't want to be put in that position. Mm-hmm. I don't want to blow the rest of the world. Uh, I don't think Putin does either, because, of course, Russia would be part of that. So what he's trying to do is is get a real strong negotiating point where they won't be put in Ukraine for sure, where they'll be taken out of Poland and Romania, and people will work out the kind of deal that we had under the uh, the, uh, Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty that was signed in 1987 and uh, from which Trump exited in 2019. Uh, that was that was a real good treaty because it prohibited this kind of missile in Europe, and we need to reinstate that. I think what, what Putin has in mind is uh, negotiating from a position of strength. And I can say more about that if you're interested, because if there is indication... Yeah, go ahead. We've got, we've got about two and a half minutes. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Well, this has always troubled me, and I think I have mentioned this on, on, on your program before. But the uh, the U.S. administration, to its credit, agreed to talk to uh, the Russians about this problem they have, and that the negotiations was, were set up to begin in Geneva, uh, second week of January this year. All of a sudden, Kremlin makes it clear we want to talk to that is Vladimir Putin wants to talk to Joe Biden now, like today, December. 30th last year. And Biden, again, to his credit, takes the call and he says, what's on your mind, Vladimir? Now, all we know is the readout from that. And the Russian readout says, Mr. Joseph Biden said, quote, the U.S. has no intention of putting offensive strike missiles in Ukraine, period, end quote. Biggie. The Russians crowed about that all during New Year's Eve and New Year's Day. That They thought this was a great concession, a real hopeful beginning for the talks, addressing their key concern. Guess what happened? Did you hear anything about this? No. It wasn't in the U.S. readout of the talks. Was it real? Of course it was, or else the U.S. would have objected to that readout. So all I'm saying is that Putin has zero um, incentive to trust Joe Biden. Once he says something, he may have been very well-intentioned, but uh, he's not running this. The military-industrial complexes and what Joe Biden promises to 
Putin doesn't really stack up as something really reliable. And I think on this issue, and this issue in particular, uh, Putin is, is waving the flag because he's threatening to took, put Iskander missiles, these are hypersonic, hyper, <laughs> hypersonic missiles, mm. um, in, well, he's, he's, he says he's going to give them to Belarus. Now, that makes me shudder. And Medvedev, the former Russian president, says that he can give, he's going to put them right next to Finland and Sweden if they, uh, they allow NATO installations near a Russian border. So... What I'm seeing here is that once the, the dust settles and uh, Zelensky is allowed to sue for peace, this will be the main, main uh, thing on, on the Russian agenda. Ray McGovern, as always, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate that analysis. Fabulous piece in antiwar.com. Look forward to having you back. Most welcome. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, and there's more on the other side. Stay tuned. I'm back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. TASS reports Russia's Ukraine operation going as planned. No need to squeeze it into deadlines. According to President Putin, the goal of the special military operation is to liberate Donbass, to defend the people living there, and to, quote, create conditions that will guarantee the security of Russia itself, end quote. For insight into this, let's turn to my next guest. He's an American citizen living in Crimea. He's a film director and podcaster, Regis Tremblay. As always, Regis, welcome back. Well, thank you, Wilmer. It's always a pleasure to be with you. So Russia's military, special military operation in Ukraine is going according to plan. There's no need to meet any deadlines for ending it. Russian President Putin said yesterday, wrapping up his visit to Ashgabat, quote, the work is proceeding in a calm and rhythmic way. That's, that's an interesting term. The troops are advancing and reaching those endpoints that are assigned as a task at a certain stage of this combat work. Everything is going according to plan. Regis, does this assessment match the coverage that you're seeing and what you're reading being in the region? Well, ab absolutely. Um, you know, Russia has been very deliberate in this uh, military operation, the first goal of the special intervention was to uh, demilitarize Ukraine. Now, what does that mean? Um, I do not think it just means to protect the Donbass, because demilitarize Ukraine means to, to absolutely neutralize their army their military capability of not only striking Donbass, but the Crimea and even the Russian mainland. Now, the updates that I have received today is that the last pockets of the Ukrainian National Army and Azov battalions are trapped in what they call a cauldron. There's nobody that can get in and then nobody can get out. That means no food, no water, no resupply, no redeployments. They're cut off. Uh, 
Wilmer, it's the exact same thing that the Russian strategy did in at the Azovstal steel mill in Mariupol and at the Azovstal chemical plant. The only people that got out alive were those who surrendered. Those who remained were terminated, neutralized. The same thing now is happening on the eastern front of Ukraine, the western front of Donbass. There are some 65,000 trapped there in two different cauldrons. What Russia's strategy is now is to shell them, bombard them uh, with precision-guided missiles, artillery, until they are so shell-shocked and disorganized that Russia will then send in the infantry, armored troops, uh, the tanks, armored per personnel carriers to finish it off. People here are now estimating that this phase one of the demilitarization will end, some people say, within a week or two at most. This will not be dragged on. The, 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 the Ukrainian military and Azov battalions will have been defeated. The other thing that I could add to this, and not many people are talking about it, Wilmer, the second goal of Russia was to denazify Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Well, denazification does not mean eliminating the Azov Battalion, the Idar Battalion, and other right-wing groups. Denazification means the purification of this ideology from Ukraine. Now, when you think about it, what that means is that Russia has to go in and actually change the government in Kiev, has to change the presidency. When I say government, I mean their, their parliament, their Rada, mm -hmm. which is heavily influenced by Nazis. And there are several neo-Nazi right-wing parties in the Rada. And Russia is going to have to begin an educational process that is going to take years. And here's why. Ever since 1945, and Stepan Bandera, who's been elevated to a hero of Ukraine, almost a saint, mm -hmm. they have been indoctrinating children and people for these last 77 years. The indoctrination has been taking place in the schools with books about Bandera, with books and actually training sessions on how to kill Russians. Now, this re-education process is going to take quite some time, as you can well imagine. Mm -hmm. And so when people are speculating, well, is Russia going to take back just the Donbass? Is it going to take, take back the middle portion, middle third of Ukraine, and then just let Kiev and Lvov go to Poland? I think when you understand what it's going to take to denazify Ukraine, those options are not on the table. The final thing I'll say about that, Wilmer, is that Russia also wants Ukraine to be completely neutral, not associated with NATO or the EU. And what that really means is Russia's immediate security interest 
will have been taken care of. Your comment. No, I think you've uh, you've laid that out fairly clearly. My my question to you on the first point about demilitarization would be, how challenging is it to demilitarize the Ukraine while NATO and the U.S. continue to pour weapons into the country? In fact, Biden just announced in Madrid that more weapons are on the way. And so my question is, uh, is the United States via NATO trying to turn this into the next Afghanistan? I don't think they can, Wilmer, and I'll tell you why. Wait a minute. I didn't ask if they could or couldn't. Is that their objective? And then tell me whether they can or can't. Is that America's objective in NATO? Yes. Yeah, it is. Okay. It is. Now tell me why Uh, they can't. Well, I'll tell you why they can't. Uh, There's several reasons. Number one, it's been reported that billions of those dollars that the U.S. has been sending to Ukraine has been ended up in the pockets of oligarchs, mm-hmm. uh, American people who have been there influencing the process. It's also been reported that many of those weapons, and if the truth is not known yet, but many of those weapons have been reported to be going to other countries mm-hmm. in NATO and beyond. And here's the big thing that I think why the United States and NATO cannot sustain this. They want to send, Biden's going to send, what, 60,000 more troops. NATO and the United States committing 300 more on the ground, stationed in Eastern Europe, and many of them in Poland. How much money is that going to cost? We're talking billions and billions of dollars to deploy that kind of an army in Eastern Europe. Mm -hmm. to house them, to build quarters for them, to feed them, to keep them active. They are not going to be involved in war. These troops are demoralized as they were in Afghanistan. For 10 years, they couldn't win. They couldn't win this battle. They lost confidence in their superiors. When American kids for the last 10 or 15 years, and going back to Iraq, going back to Syria, redeployed, every 12 or 14 or 18 months. It's destructive of two things. One, morale, and number two, family life. They don't get to see their families. Mm -hmm. Divorce is outrageous among troops that have been redeployed that many times. And so I don't think when you look at the economic factor and you look at the morale factor, not only of American troops, but European NATO troops, This is a very misguided strategy that, like everything else, between the sanctions and the belief that they could take down Russia quickly, uh, is is misconceived. It's going to blow up in their face. And there's a piece in Responsible Statecraft, CIA ops, commandos in Ukraine, can we just admit we are fighting this war? Uh, No boots on the ground seems like an empty assurance considering this new report from the New York Times. We talked about this yesterday with other guests, but I wanted to get your take on this because there are two things that I find interesting. One is the fact that it's being reported in the New York Times, and the other is that it's being reported now. Your thoughts? Well, I couldn't agree with you. I think that's very encouraging that the New York Times is, is beginning to report this. You know, Doug Valentine has written a book, The CIA Has Organized Crime, and I interviewed him a few years ago and, and did 
broke it up into three segments. And one of the segments was the CIA and Ukraine 70 years on. And so the CIA has been there for all this time, very mm -hmm. much involved in that. Now, in terms of boots on the ground, you make a really good point. I have been saying ever since this special in, in, uh, intervention started that the United States and NATO has had boots on the ground. It's well known. Special operations have been training Ukraine for more than a decade, more than a decade. There are commandos, special ops, who, whether they're shooting, if they're firing their, their weapons or they are advising and commanding, doesn't make any difference. It's boots on the ground. I make a distinction between that and a massive United States presence on the ground. But you're exactly right. Uh, this is a direct hot war, which I've been saying now for some time between the United States and Russia, and it's being carried out on the territory of Ukraine. This is really what it is really all about. $57 billion of money and weapons, all of this advice, satellite intelligence, uh, other types of intelligence, United States commanders, high-level commanders have been running this operation since the beginning. How else can you describe it as a direct hot war between the United States and Russia, boots on the ground? You can argue that, but it's a fact. Uh, U.S. News and World Reports reports that uh, Kaliningrad row, EU nears compromise deal to defuse standoff with Russia, trade through Lithuania to the Russian enclave of Kaliningrad could return to normal within days, according to sources, as European officials edge towards a compromise deal with the Baltic state to defuse this conflict with Moscow. We've got about a minute and a half. Regis Tremblay. Uh I cannot believe that this tiny little country of Lithuania did this. Russia promised a very severe response. I think that the United States, and that's where the decisions are made. They're made in the United States. They're not NATO and they're not the EU. Simultaneously, Norway is blocking access to a mining operation that Russia has that they need to go through Norway. Again, Russia promised severe, severe response. I think the decision makers realized that these two things have gone just a little bit too far and they cannot afford to have this conflict spill over into other parts of the Baltics or uh, former Soviet countries. With your saying that, it makes me wonder, does the United States really want conflict or does the United States want appearance of conflict to rationalize more military spending? I think you're probably right. I think you're probably right. Regis Tremblay, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate it and look forward to having you back. Thank you very much. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We're back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. 
The South China Morning Post reports NATO leaders say China is a systemic challenge to Euro-Atlantic security. What does this mean and how concerned should we be that the U.S. via NATO is priming the pump for war? For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's a journalist, social activist, international business consultant, and chemical engineer, George Koo. As always, George, welcome back. Thank you, Wilmer. Nice to be back. Always great to have you. So so China has been identified for the first time as a systemic challenge to Euro-Atlantic security in NATO's strategic concept, a key document that sets the alliance's military and security strategy for the next 10 years. And since this is setting the military and security strategy, that's why I asked the question, is NATO priming the pump for war? What does this say to you, George Koo? Well, it says a number of things. Um, first of all, it seems like uh, Anthony Blinken has been very successful in promoting the idea that China is violating the rules of international order. That's that's a phrase taken out of his often uh, remarks, and nobody really knows what rules uh, of international order really means. He's never defined it. We certainly know that um, if there's an international order, in accordance to the United Nations, anyway, then U.S. has been the first and most often violate, violating the inter- international order because they don't pay any attention when it suits them uh, to whatever the United Nations Charter has to say. So that's one thing. The second thing is that NATO, it turns out, is not so brain-dead after all. This is what Macron, uh, the French uh, president said that you know we don't have any need for NATO. That's just that that remark was only a, I guess before the Russian uh, incursion into U- Ukraine. So adding China to the new list of adversary justifies the existence of NATO, and it gives uh, a rejuvenation to uh, to the organization that was running out of reasons to exist. Um, it doesn't bode well, frankly, for the world peace and, uh, and order, because um, certainly the NATO organization is lo- looking increasingly to expand beyond North Atlantic to uh, North Pacific, and that's the reason for Japan and South Korea uh, and others to join into this particular meeting in Madrid. So all in all, I think we are trending towards a, a decoupling of the West versus China and, the, and all the other non-aligned countries. It, does, it doesn't sound good. Now, whether anything real will actually happen, that remains to be seen because the NATO members are not all on the same page. Uh, members like Germany and France and Italy, they're not so anxious to take on. They're already having enough problems dealing with Russia and the energy crisis and the inflation that this has caused. 
they're not particularly anxious to take on China when there's no reason to. So going forward, it's hard to know whether there's going to be a very sharp divide between the NATO member countries and the rest of the world or not. So I, I know this is almost impossible to answer, but at least for the yeah. for discussion purposes. So when President Xi and when President Putin see this document, do they look at each other and say, uh-oh, they're coming for us? Or is this really more of the rationale that will be used to justify the increase in military spending so that Lockheed Martin and Raytheon and, and Boeing and, and these other Sikorsky helicopter, who I think just got this huge new Sikorsky helicopter contract, yeah. uh, so that they can justify the money going into the coffers of the military-industrial complex? Well, that, that certainly can be attributed to the U.S. motivation because they're the ones that spending the, 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 the arms. I mean, I, I understand that um, the Ukrainian Ukrainian side of the war has used up all the javelins the U.S. has in, in inventory. Um, and so that, of course, gives a rush order to the maker of javelin. Um, but, you know, I just, I'm, I, I, I'm not so sure that the other NATO countries have that much at stake in terms of uh, re, re, you know, reordering from the military-industrial complex because there are much smaller players compared to the U.S. Um, it seems like the, the New Zealand, Australia, and the other countries in the Pacific are kind of being hornswoggled into seeing China as a, as a real military threat and it's it's a it's a vicious cycle in, in in my mind because when the u.s navy missiles goes sailing through south china sea in the taiwan strait in the name of freedom of navigation uh, freedom of uh, uh, navigation china's answer was well okay we're going to strengthen some of these islands that we hold and make sure that we have a viable military counter if you decide to get nasty. And then the U.S. turns around and says, see, China's being aggressive. They're putting, they're putting uh, military on, uh, on these Lanzhou islands in the South China Sea and threatening us. And it goes around and around and, and looks like U.S. has been very successful in convincing the at least the Western Hemisphere, the the countries under the U.S. influence, convincing them that China is a viable military threat, whereas China's response has been to as a counter to the real military threat, which is the U.S. not U.S. military. Well, and the United States via NATO has done the same thing as it relates to Russia as in promising back in the 90s that the that 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 NATO would not move any further eastward past Germany towards Russia now right. and and over the years 
Putin has warned the United States, you guys are pushing this too far. You're pushing this too far. And then when he finally responds, now it's, oh, look at how crazy the guy is. He's being aggressive. And now because he has a relationship with China, now all of a sudden China must be viewed with a jaundice eye because of their military clout. Yeah. And, and of course, the fact that, that China didn't step over to the West and condemn mm-hmm. the Russian uh, invasion, that makes China guilty uh, as part of the Russian um, um, alliance, even though there's no such formal declaration in that regard. Um, let's face it, as you say, NATO advanced towards China, uh, Russia in five different segments, five different steps. Mm-hmm. Until until Ukraine became the uh, the hotspot of conflict, and you know the the West certainly the American public don't understand or don't remember any of that. All they seem to know and understand is that Russia is the bad guy because they invaded Ukraine and they started this war. They have forgotten the fact that Ukraine has been firing on mm-hmm. the uh, Donbass region as early as 2014. So you can really say the conflict started as early as 2014, and the Russia was in response to that rather than the initiator. So the pictures are, uh, are so the, the portrayal in the media is so one-sided. It's not possible for for um, for anyone to make a uh, reasoned judgment, and if you do make a reasoned judgment, you 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 are, you're really going uphill because so much of it is is you know is direct, directed against your point of view. Chinese leader Xi Jinping hails vitality of one country, two systems in a rival speech in Hong Kong. Talk about the fact that uh, Chinese President Xi arrived today in Hong Kong for a two-day visit, and uh, what do you take away from his speech? Well, I think um, there's there's not any uh, no real surprise in his speech. Frankly, he is he's celebrating the twenty five twenty five year anniversary of return from Hong Kong. I think he's pointing out and and the evidence certainly supports that Hong Kong is much better off now than it was in 1997. If you measure it by GDP, you measure it by uh, any uh, economic activity, um, including the fact that uh, Hong Kong is a much safer place now because of the security measures that they put in. Um, and, and, And I think Hong Kong will continue to figure as an important um, port and mirror and 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 a window to the outside world and from the outside world into China. I thought it was also important and significant that Xi Jinping arrived in Hong Kong through the high speed rail. It's um it's really truly a short commute for him mm-hmm. because he then he goes back to Shenzhen to stay stay overnight and then comes comes back the next day. It's so convenient that he didn't have to stay overnight in Hong Kong, which creates, you know, much more um, safety and security problems for him and also for the local Hong Kong authorities. Um, 
Again, you know, the West doesn't hear the, the message. They seem to think about the Hong Kong dissidents that now are you know, living a second-class citizenship in Britain, the ones who made it there, and those who are looking to go back to Hong Kong and resume a much better life that they had before they left. So all in all, the uh, Hong Kong experiment is considered a success as far as Beijing is concerned. Um, whether that's going to be applicable to Taiwan as a one-country, two-system, I think a lot of work has to be done yet for Beijing to convince the people in Taiwan that being part of China is going to be a much more of a winning approach and solution for them than for them to be con- continue to be living under the threat of a proxy war that the uh, U.S. Is, is hoping to start and hoping to make Taiwan the second Ukraine. In fact, that was going to be my next question was, are there any parallels to draw? Are we to make any inferences from his speech in Hong Kong relative to Taiwan? Well, I think he continues to reach out for, to the Taiwan people and, and, and emphasize that um, being part of the world's second largest economy, soon to be the number one, is, is all to the advantage of Taiwan for the people on Taiwan. And in point of fact, on a recent survey taken by um, the, the, a, the Taiwan poll organization shows that okay. it, used to, it used to be 60% of the people in Taiwan thought the Americans would come and fight uh, with them mm-hmm. if they were to start a war with, uh, with mainland China. That sentiment has dropped by more than half. Wow. Most people in Taiwan now does not believe okay. that the U.S. will, you know, based on the Ukraine experience, mm-hmm. they don't believe that the U.S. will fight, will want to fight alongside. In fact, I think that some of the Taiwan pundits observe that, yeah, we're all in favor of a proxy war. We're ready to fight to the last American. <laughs> ready to fight to the last American. George Koo, as always, really appreciate it. Look forward to having you back. Thank you, Wilmer. Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. The Wall Street Journal reports gas prices test American appetite for new Cold War with Russia. Biden, caught between climate goals and inflation, should look to how Germany's Green Party adapted its energy policies. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's an associate professor of economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, and he's a former president of the National Economics Association, Dr. Linwood Tawheed. As always, sir, welcome back. Thank you. So the journal opens 
Russian President Putin knows that in this Cold War, time is not on his side. Even with China in his corner, the U.S. and its allies have an overwhelming advantage in wealth, knowledge, technology, and finance. Mr. Putin's only path to victory is to inflict a high enough short-term cost on Western consumers that political support for Ukraine will crumble. Recent developments might give Mr. Putin hope. As the shock and awe of the West's initial sanctions have worn off, Russia's economy, though battered, hasn't imploded. Dr. Tahid, there is a lot wrong with just that one paragraph. Uh, your thoughts? Yes, I mean, this is the Wall Street Journal, and uh, they're taking a position that they've taken for a while. They're sticking to it, even though the facts on the ground are, are, are changing. And they're reporting some of the facts, but they're sticking to their story. Uh, the idea that this was shock and awe uh, makes you wonder which way, which way the shock was headed, because the shock did not awe uh, uh, Russia or Putin. It, it, it uh, blew back on, on Europe primarily, uh, but the U.S. also. And, and so that shock and awe that was intended for Russia uh, is, has boomeranged. Uh, in addition, uh, it, it says that, that Putin, you know, uh, has, uh, uh, can't, can't stand a long-term strategy, uh, that time is not on his side. Well, we, we see that in France. Macron has lost his parliamentary majority. Uh, Boris Johnson in, in the U.K. Is, is losing his. And an election is coming up in the U.S. and November Biden and the Democrats are in trouble. And it is thought that in Germany, Olaf Scholz m may very well lose his. Yes, yes. And so, and so we have these other, these countries, NATO countries and, and the U.S., who are uh, becoming more and more unstable as Putin's popularity is in the 80 percent. And so, and so, you know, Putin has the upper hand here in time. He can simply wait for governments in these countries to change and presumably, that gives them an opportunity, these other countries, an uh, opportunity to change their policy with regard to this war. Um, and, and so the shock and awe is, is shocking the West. It's not shocking Russia. And the Democrats in the United States will most likely lose the Senate and the House in November. And if he runs again, Joe Biden will probably lose the White House in 24. So well, to, go ahead. No, no, no. I mean, not only is it is it kind of typical for the party out out, out of power to gain seats in in the midterms, it's it's also uh, not typical for a a sitting president in first term to be so unpopular, only at a, about a forty percent popularity. But just to your point about the midterms, if the Democrats had been able to deliver on half of what Biden had promised during the campaign on the heels of Donald Trump, I think that historic trend uh, might not have proven to come to fruition. Uh, this, this, this idea of even with China in his corner, U.S. and its allies have an overwhelming advantage in wealth, knowledge, technology, and finance. I understand the wealth aspect of this in terms of overwhelming advantage, but Knowledge, technology, and finance? Uh, with China in his corner? Uh, my money might be on President Putin. Well, yes. I mean, we, we're talking about, uh, you know, we're talking about technology. For example, one of the height, uh, one of the measures of technology between these different countries would be, let's say, supercomputer or even quantum computing uh, capability. 
and China is is leading in quantum computer capability and goes back and forth with IBM, a private company, in supercomputer uh, speed. Uh, the, the you know the over the last fifty years for China and the last thirty years for for Russia as they were part of the global economy, uh, the technology that they did not have when we had the old China, communist China, or the old Soviet Union, that 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 technology is transplanted everywhere, and and much of the that technology, uh, much of the parts for these uh, these uh, devices and so forth are coming from from Russia or from China. And so, and so that uh, the, the the West has no lead in technology. I mean, you know, the, Russia has hype, and, and China have hypersonic missiles that are estimated to be ten years ahead of what the West could produce. Uh, in terms in terms of finance, that's just a matter of of uh, you know uh, establishing a non uh, dollar denominated currency for doing transactions. And China has been working on that process for ten years, and it's now being jump started by the Ukraine situation. And if I just say 5G, that if, if, from a technology perspective. Oh, and then the other one, Russia's economy, though battered, hasn't imploded. Isn't the ruble trading now at the highest rate it's traded, I think, since the inception of the currency? The, the ruble is the strongest currency in the world right now. Oh, but uh, Russia's economy uh, and, and, is battered, though. Okay. <laughs> well, well, yes. Okay. Uh, just so there's so much contradiction in this, but the Wall Street Journal is sticking to their story, even though the facts are not supported. Okay. All right. All right. According to OilPrice.com, oil likely to hit two hundred dollars. Oil prices are likely to soar past two hundred dollars per barrel if the G7 manages to cap the price of Russian crude. This is according to the chief commodities analyst at Swedish bank SEB Group. Uh, we talk a bit about Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen's brilliant idea to put pressure on European countries to support a price cap. Hmm. Well, first of all, if 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 you if the EU and the US are not buying Russian oil, then a price cap set by them on Russian oil actually does nothing because uh, you, you know, and, and so it's it, it's it's a silly idea. <laughs> That's why I'm that, laughing. Uh, that, that that you could you could force uh, 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 Putin to sell you oil at a lower price if you're not selling oil at all. And and not only that, Russia has has uh, a windfall in uh, since since February since the war started of about a hundred billion dollars. Excuse me, a hundred yeah, uh, is it a hundred million dollars in terms of extra oil um, uh, revenue? And is expected uh, for the next quarter for that to be even higher. They're pumping more oil than 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 they ever have. Uh, it's not mostly going to the EU anymore. It's going uh, to other places. For example. Much of that oil is is reaching the EU by going through India, and so if you're going to set a price cap on oil coming from Russia, are they also going to set a price cap on oil coming by by from India uh, uh, originally from Russia? Uh, and and so if they were to do that, the the Russians uh, would uh, could simply uh, decrease the the, the um, the sale of any oil that they're that they're selling, which would cause and now a shortfall, a greater shortfall in oil, and then that two hundred dollar a barrel uh, price would be would be attained. If there's a contradiction in this again, that if you set a price cap, uh, presumably the cap won't be two hundred dollars a barrel. 
And so why would why would oil prices go up to two hundred dollars a barrel? That's because Russia would would uh, would not sell at whatever the price cap is. And this is Janet Yellen's idea. She's got a PhD in economics from Harvard's Business School. Well, I, 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 I yes, J- Janet Yellen is a smart person. I suspect that this is not coming from her economic brain. It's oh. coming from the political. The, the political advisors are, are advising her to take this position. The same political advisors that that have uh, prompted this this war uh, between Ukraine and Russia, and the sanctions that that did not work, and, and other things that are failing. Uh, I, I can't believe that that Yellen would think this would work, but this is what her advisors, this is what the Biden administration, this is their policy. And she let her, she let them put her name on it. Okay, well, you know, you're a very, I've all, this is not new. You're a really nice guy, and this is a, this is evidence of of, of how nice you are. Uh, oil markets could face a doomsday scenario this week. Expect lots of oil price volatility in the coming months as markets finally discover just how much spare capacity OPEC members really have. Uh, Price volatility right now is not something that the market, and I don't just mean the oil market, I mean the overall markets need because people's consistency and security are two things that are very, very important, particularly in times like this. And so a volatile oil market is not going to bode well for anybody's economy. And and what 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 the volatility in oil, which is the the essence of energy, does it, it makes everything else uncertain. Uh, you know, if if people have have uh, fixed incomes, for example, and they need to choose between heating their homes in the winter time or medication, well, they're generally going to choose uh, heating their homes. And, and so the volatility is not just in oil or energy. The volatility comes in. And uh, other things like health uh, care and uh, price of medications and so forth. So energy being uh, oil is is essentially the backbone of energy production, of drug production, of fertilizer production, of industrial production in general in the West. Volatility in oil creates volatility everywhere. And that's not what we need. Final point, cooling consumer spending points to further economic slowdown. Household spending in May rose at slowest rate this year. Some economists see second straight quarterly contraction. Consumer spending cooled to a two-tenths of a percent advance in May, down from the revised six-tenths of a percent increase in April. What does this say to you, Dr. Linwood Tawheed? It says that we're heading into recession if we're not already there. I mean, in the first quarter of this year, um, the GDP was down 1.6%. So we were already having a, a downturn in, in the economic production. Uh, the, an official definition of a recession is, is to have two quarters of downturn. We've already had one. Mm-hmm. If this, this quarter uh, ending in June is also a downturn and consumer spending seems to be uh, going down, uh, then we, we are officially in a recession. Now, consumer spending is less volatile than, let's say, investment spending. And so when consumer spending goes down, then, then you pretty much know that investment spending is going down even further because businesses are, are looking at the fact that, that uh, less and less of their product is being sold, and they begin to gear down and, and not to invest a, a, as much in production. And so uh, investment spending is, is more volatile, to use that word again. 
and investment spending is down more than consumer spending, we are uh, in another quarter of downturn, which is officially a recession. And so it's, it's, always, it's always interesting to me that economists are saying, well, recession next year or two years from now, I, I, I think it's going to be much closer than that. And as we look at the fact that when you talk about investment spending, since the manufacturing base in this country mm-hmm. has contracted to the degree that it has because we offshore and we've deindustrialized so much of our economy and we have now more of a financialized economy, mm-hmm. uh, that that investing in manufacturing to a great degree isn't taking place here. It's not taking place anyway because much of the product is not being a profit is not being invested is being used to buy back stocks. But, but but when Wall Street is in contraction, then there's even less to invest and, of course, less profit. And, and so I think Wall Street is, is an indicator of, the, of a downturn in investing. Uh, then we have the consumer spending downturn. I, I, would, I would stick my neck out and say we are in a recession. Dr. Linwood Tahid, as always, sir, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate it. Look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you are listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. The Libertarian Institute writes, UN will cut food aid for millions of Yemenis again. The United Nations World Food Program will drastically scale back its humanitarian aid to Yemen, where it provides emergency food assistance to more than 13 million people, citing funding shortfalls and soaring prices around the globe. What's behind the UN's rationale? Well, for insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's the National Organizer for Action for Assange, Steve Poikin. And Steve, as always, welcome back. Well, thank you, Wilmer. It's good to be here. So we've got a catastrophe in Yemen. Most of it is being brought on by the aggressive action by Saudi Arabia backed by the United States. There are also some agricultural issues and and weather-related issues, but most of this is brought on by the war that the Saudis are are waging uh, in Yemen. And the UN is citing shortfalls and soaring prices around the globe, but the United States has no problem finding $40 billion to send to the Ukraine. Or $55 billion to send to Ukraine with a $7 billion a month pledge thereafter, apparently in perpetuity. The the United States, Saudi Arabia, the U.N. has not just stood idly by as the largest man-made genocide in human history has gone on in Yemen. They have made it possible, and they're keeping it possible. And just as we were levying sanctions against Russia in the first round uh, you know, four months ago, the same time, the UN, when the U.N. met to decide whether or not Russia was going to be a sitting member of the Security Council, that same session, they added more sanctions to Yemen, and they added more blockades to Yemen. This is an ongoing act of brutality 
against uh, the people who, at this point, does anybody even know why we have this genocide here? It, it was a power grab a decade ago, and Yemen's quote-unquote leader doesn't even live there. The the people that the U.S. recognize, he's the, you know, the original Juan Guaido. <laughs> like, he's just an imaginary president where the only reason they're allowed to facilitate this ongoing genocide is because the Yemenis are powerless to defend themselves. And Joe Biden now is on his way to Saudi Arabia to meet with, well, he said the intent of his visit is not to meet with Mohammed bin Salman, but I am going to see him at this meeting while I'm there. And so he said during the campaign he was going to have nothing to do with MBS. Now he's going with hat in hand to MBS. And he said during the campaign that he was going to bring an end to the United States offensive involvement. I think those were his words in the Ukraine. And, um, this is where we are, Steve Boykin. Well, <laughs> Joe Biden's in a very precarious situation right now, especially where the Saudis are concerned, because the sanctions the U.S. has put on Russia and the limitations that, that the U.S. and NATO have put on the rest of the world in order to receive uh, their energy supplies <clears throat> have made it so that now all of the, the G7 nations and all of the BRICS nations are, are in open, desperate grab for resources that they themselves can't necessarily produce. Where MBS is concerned, of course Joe Biden had to say that on the campaign trail. His political party made extensive political hay over Donald Trump not going to do anything about Saudi Arabia and Jamal Khashoggi and all of that thing. So so he had to say those things. But the reality is, for years, historically, and especially during the Obama administration, where Joe Biden was vice president, they courted Mohammed bin Salman. They courted that side of the Saudi royal family. Those were their boys. So when Joe Biden's in a pinch, who do you think he's going to call up first? I mean, the, this is a, a natural reaction to longstanding relationships that they had that they had to publicly distance themselves from because it was politically expedient. But now it's economically relevant. So who cares about what we said a couple of years ago? But I'm going to this guy's country. I'm not going to his country to meet him, but I will see him while he's at this meeting that I'm going to go to. I mean, <laughs> well, we're supposed to, you know, <laughs> we're supposed to fall for that. Um <laughs> Ukraine sees Finland and Sweden NATO membership as new prospect to join. Russia and Ukraine are reacting to Turkey lifting its week-long hold on Finland and Sweden's NATO bids. Kiev views NATO opening the door for Helsinki and Stockholm as a new chance at entering the alliance. In contrast, Moscow considers the latest round of NATO expansion a threat to Russia. And it's interesting that they're talking again about Ukraine entering NATO when they've been told numerous times that's not going to happen. Uh, <laughs> Steve. Well, I don't even know if they get to if they're going to get a, away with uh, letting Finland in. They may get away with Sweden, 
But I, there's no other way to look at any of this other than open acts of aggression against Russia. The whole big lie of NATO to begin with was that, okay, we're going to have these member states and we are never going to expand eastward towards the Russian border. As soon as those words were spoken, they were violated. So the every eastward expansion of NATO is perceived as it's supposed to be. We're encroaching further and further and further up to the Russian border. We're here as a hostile military force, and, and this is something that you're going to have to deal with one way or the other. Uh, as far as Ukraine's application or invitation, I, I, are they just doing dinner theater at this point? Like, is this what, what happened to Scary Poppins? Is she now directing what is going on w- with these NATO summits? Because there's there's a very... I don't know, Disney-esque or cartoon-esque element to, to all of this as billions of dollars in military equipment is being poured into Ukraine and bodies are being pulled out and the conflicting propaganda reports around it just seem to underscore Russia's point that no, as a matter of fact, this is never going to happen. We don't care what you clowns say anymore. So when you look at the other NATO members... Where do they see the upside here? I mean, are they are they so locked in the vacuum that they just can't see? And, and I'm not I mean, this isn't a projection of 10, 15, 20 years out. This this seems like it's not going to work two or three years out. Is the United States ability to put pressure on these countries so strong that they feel their hands are tied and they have absolutely no way to go? Or are they just so locked into their vacuums that their ability to assess reality is greatly impaired or a combination of the two? I, I do think it's a combination of the two, but underscoring a lot of this are, are the intelligence agency relationships that the Five Eyes have, that Israel has with these countries. And then there's also uh, the... Little trial took place, and a sentence was delivered, and it wasn't R. Kelly. It was Ghislaine Maxwell, who was a child sex trafficker, and she only got 20 years, Wilmer, but she did receive the longest sentence for a sex trafficker with no clients. And that's where the, the problem lies, is that the clients of a well-publicized, long-known child sex trafficking ring for blackmail and influence and leverage exists throughout the West at the highest levels of power and industry, politics, entertainment, you name it. So are these countries compromised? Yes. Is their leadership compromised? Thoroughly. Are their hands tied? as much as they possibly can be. And I guarantee you that there are people who have been looking for ways out for years, but the systemic corruption, the, the interlocked relationships between horrible human beings and their positions of power and the amount of leverage that's being held over them by the U.S. intelligence community, by the British intelligence community, by the Israeli intelligence community, is, is putting them in a position where they more or less have to watch their own countries burn 
one way or the other. And that's the stark reality of it. You mentioned Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell. Donald Trump, Bill Clinton, and Kevin Spacey are just some of the high-profile figures who allegedly flew on Jeffrey Epstein's Lolita Express private jet. And was one of the things I found very interesting, since you mentioned her name, I just wanted to make this point. One of the things I find very interesting is that her black book has been sequestered by the court. It's not even, and, and I haven't really been able to hear any explanation as to why the, and I can only assume that her black book would be a log or the log of who was where, when, and how many times. And the court has now locked that away and that's not to be made public. What does that say to you? Well, it says that there are national security implications that that would be rather uh, rather explosive were they to come out. It says to me that I, because Ehud Barak was on that client or was on the the flight list for the Lolita Express. I mean, there are a number of of other world leaders. Mm-hmm. Prince Andrew. We, I mean, we are we're not talking about uh, you know uh, a couple of bikers or a couple of Serbians who are looking to make, you know, uh, some money on the side. This is the most powerful people on the planet. And when they lock away the very thing that would provide not just closure for victims' families or recompense for victims' families, but when they lock away the, the thing that would prove beyond a shadow of a doubt how power currently moves and who is being moved by it, uh, that's because they have everything to hide. <laughs> Final point, Madrid summit declaration. The NATO summit in Madrid comes to a close. They issue their statement. We, the heads of state and government of the North Atlantic Alliance, have gathered in Madrid Uh, NATO is a defensive alliance, poses no threat to any country. We're committed to democracy and liberty. Uh, We've got 30 seconds. This is an incredibly well-written piece of fiction. If Tom Clancy himself sat down to write a fictitious declaration for NATO, it would fall well short of the masterstroke of pure propaganda that is in all of these points. And again, it's what it is, is an open declaration of encroachment and hostilities onto the Russian border. Steve Foykinen, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you very much, Wilmer. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. I'm back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. Responsible Statecraft has a piece entitled NATO Boasts Unity, But Potential for Division Lies Ahead. As the war in Ukraine drags on, already diverging camps in the Atlantic Alliance are likely to fracture further. As the leaders of NATO gathered in Madrid for their summit on June 29, they predictably made a show of unity and solidarity in countering the Russian war of aggression against Ukraine and in defense of the rules-based international order. 
For insight into this, we turn to my next guest. He's an international relations and security analyst based in Moscow, Mark Schloboda. As always, Mark, welcome back. Dr. Leon, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on The Critical Hour. So this responsible statecraft analysis, which we've said on this show a number of times, you always have to pay very close attention to responsible statecraft pieces, identifies two camps, the United States, UK, and nations in Eastern Europe, who seem to embrace the view that a permanent weakening of Russia should be the goal. And then they have what they call the emerging peace camp, led by Germany, France, and Italy, advocating for a swift ceasefire and ensuring negotiations leading to a diplomatic settlement between Russia and Ukraine. Do you see the camps as stated in this responsible statecraft analysis? And do you, in spite of this joint statement and all of this kumbaya, do you really see there being fissures under the surface? Yeah, I I think that the extent of a distinction between the position uh, particularly of of Germany and France and the U.S. and the U.K. uh, is overstated uh, by responsible statecraft for the Kinsey Institute. Um, Just in the recent hours, the chancellor of Germany, Olaf Scholz, has says that there can be no that if there is a um, a some type of peace settlement between Kiev, uh, the Kiev regime, and uh, Russia, that is on Moscow's terms, that the West will still not lift sanctions on Russia, which, of course, uh, would uh, obviate any motivation for Russia to engage in such negotiations. Uh, So I I don't view that as a position that is conducive to peace talks. I see that as rather the opposite, particularly when that's coming from Germany, which is largely the center of gravity. Uh, Likewise, even when Macron is talking, he's talking about um, uh, not humiliating Russia or, you know, the idea of providing the Russian president with an off-ramp. That is viewed f- from Russia as being incredibly, an incredible statement of hubris, mm-hmm. uh, considering the circumstances, uh, the economic blowback of the West's own sanctions on their own uh, economies and citizens, uh, and on the state of of the conflict on the ground in Ukraine, uh, with with Russia's you know uh, clear uh, successes, uh, mopping up, uh, grinding down uh, the Kiev regime's forces, even with the flood of NATO weapons uh, and training and uh, special forces on the ground, not making any uh, big strategic difference in the outcome of the conflict. The way it's viewed from Russia is there are a few people calling not to humiliate Western leaders, although it must be said not many are having that position. Uh, and, um, you know, I think that it is the Western leaders that need an off ramp, not Russia. There are a few, shall we say, outliers in NATO that are not, I would say, fully committed to this project. 
Hungary, of course, is a prime example, but there are some others. And I think we will start to see more fishers grow uh, as we approach the winter uh, when we see that uh, almost certainly by then um, the Donbass will be completely liberated. Russia will be moving on to other territories in East Ukraine, almost certainly. And the economic costs uh, to uh, European countries of trying to do uh, a winter without Russian energy, without having any replacements, especially any affordable replacements in place, uh, will start to put pressure on them. And I think you will start to see those cracks widen. You say Olaf Scholz makes the statement that a peace settlement on Russia's terms will not result in sanctions being lifted. And I think you alluded to this. But the question is, well, then on whose terms will they be? Because uh, Russia is winning and winning hands down. So this makes me wonder if we were to put this in the context of geometry, how can how can you and I solve a, a geometric problem? If you see it as a square and I see it as a circle, how, how do we how do we get there? Yeah, it, I don't know what they're thinking in private, but all of Western leaders like Olaf Scholz public statements suggest that they are living in a propaganda bubble of mm. their own creation. Mm hmm unwilling to acknowledge the reality on the ground. Um, I, again, I don't know if they simply don't, they are not properly informed by their own intelligence agencies about what the real state of affairs is, or whether they're just continuing this uh, propagandistic denial of reality for the sake of keeping the Kiev regime fighting, for the sake of their own publics, but it is, first of all, it's certainly not conducive in any way, shape, or form to a peace, because that if they don't accept a a um, peace settlement on Russia's terms, that means they would only accept a peace settlement on their terms. Which takes me to the next question: What are their terms? If President Putin were to call Joe Biden in ten minutes and say, "Okay, Joe, I'm done. What do you want me to do?" What, what would the answer be? Yeah, I, I think that the only thing that they would accept is Russia, which is winning, pulling all of its troops uh, out of Ukraine um, and, and possibly even including, you know, uh, the Donbass, which has been uh, areas which have been separate uh, from the Kiev regime since 2014 and Crimea. Uh, which voted in a referendum to join Russia. And that is simply not going to happen. Right. Uh, the people of Crimea would never accept it, and mm -hmm. Russia would go to nuclear war first. So there's a, an impasse. And until uh, Western countries start to accept the reality of the situation on the ground, at least publicly, or, or perhaps privately in their own heads as well, <laughs> there is no hope for peace anywhere in the near future. Madrid summit declaration. NATO has come to a close with its summit in Madrid. Uh, we, the heads of the state and government of 
The North Atlantic Alliance have gathered in Madrid as war has returned to Europe. NATO is a defensive alliance and poses no threat to any country. We are united in our commitment to democracy, individual liberty, human rights, and the rule of law. We adhere to international law. Mark Sloboda, I, I read this thing, man, and it's, it's a brilliant work of fiction. Yeah. Uh, once again, it is so far divorced from the reality. I mean, NATO has never been used as a defensive alliance, yet they have been used in Serbia and in Libya, um, in Serbia to carve Kosovo uh, out of the state, uh, in Libya to destroy the country and turn it into a warlord and terrorist haven, a failed state. They have performed a post facto backup for its principal members, the United States' aggressions, its invasions and occupations of Iraq and Afghanistan. I don't I don't see I don't it is impossible to claim that any of that is defensive. And the fact that they don't even acknowledge what their own aggressive expansionist military bloc is doing. Again, they're living in a propaganda bubble that has no relation to reality, which makes it impossible to deal with them diplomatically in any type of rational, sane basis. The New York Times reports CIA ops commandos in Ukraine. Can we just admit we are fighting this war? No boots on the ground seems like an empty assurance considering this new report from the New York Times. Mark, your thoughts on this report, and I've been asking folks to comment on it in this context. One, the fact that it's actually being written in the New York Times, and two, why now? Yeah. So if NATO's new strategic concept put out during the Madrid summit uh, formalizes the reality of the new Cold War, if you want to call it that, what this admission, what has long been really known, but is now being admitted to by the U.S. government, uh, that they have CIA agents and uh, European special forces commandos on the ground uh, performing, uh, uh, basically guiding uh, the Kiev regime forces through this conflict, that that Cold War is now hot. Uh, that there is a direct war between NATO and Russia going on in Ukraine, that the, the proxy gloves are no longer existent in some places. Um, and the fact that they are admitting it now uh, is for two reasons uh, that are not mutually exclusive. I think they're actually self-reinforcing. One is because the number of Western intelligence and special forces that are starting that will be starting to return to their countries in body bags is no longer is is in such a number is that it will not be able to be denied anymore so they're coming out in front now of it now uh and secondly uh that they are preparing the western publics for more mission creep uh this is the exact same way of course that it started in vietnam uh, with claims of of trainers and advisors mm-hmm. on the ground, or much more recently, uh, in Syria, uh, when Obama, uh, you know, said, "Oh, we won't get involved," but then there was CIA on the ground directing weapons flows uh, to 
um, uh, jihadis, I mean, sorry, moderate jihadis, I mean, sorry, moderate rebels. Um, and it ended up with where we are now with the U.S. having invaded and continuing to militarily occupy East Syria. Uh, if we follow down that primrose path uh, in Ukraine of mission creep, um, it, it, if that's clearly where they believe they are headed, that is why they are putting this out now to prepare their publics uh, for uh, more direct involvement. Uh, and I think that it is extremely possible that we will see at the very least U.S. and Polish and possibly NATO troops at some time later this year um, if Russia continues uh, to win the conflict as they are being sent into West Ukraine to claim it for NATO. And that will result in both Russian and Western military forces in conflict with each other in NATO. I mean, in Ukraine. And you just answered my next question, which was going to be, this is no surprise to Russia. So what's Russia going to do? We've got 30 seconds. I think that deconfliction at that point, unless the U.S. Uh, would restrict such a direct intervention to West Ukraine, uh, it was very hard to see how Russian troops and Western troops would deconflict uh, properly. Uh, it is almost certain that there would be conventional fighting, and then it is very hard to see where that does not okay. end in a nuclear conflict. That's not a good projection. Mark Sloboda, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thanks for having me. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, and there's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. Caitlin Johnstone has a piece in Consortium News entitled, NATO Expands, Responding to War Caused by NATO Expansion. She writes, Sweden and Finland moved rapidly to apply to NATO in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, reversing decades of security policy and opening the door to the alliance's ninth expansion since 1949. Axios reports, so the Western Empire will be expanding NATO again in response to a war that was predominantly caused by NATO expansion. Brilliant. For insight into this, let's turn to my next guest. He's a former U.S. Marine Corps intelligence officer and author of Disarmament in the Time of Perestroika, Arms Control and the End of the Soviet Union. He served in the Soviet Union as an inspector implementing the INF Treaty, served in General Schwarzkopf's staff during the Gulf War, and from 91 to 98, served as a chief weapons inspector with the U.N. in Iraq. Scott Ritter, as always, Scott, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So I guess I would uh, the analogy I would draw here is this is calling me arsonist to put out the fire. Yeah, well that's 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 a good one. Except the arsonist might actually be able to put out the fire. Um, <laughs> the, you know, NATO. This is this is NATO's death knell. They've um, they've committed suicide. Uh, they they've swallowed the pill. There's no antidote. You know, it may take a long time for the death to occur. 
but uh, NATO is finished. Um, and one of the reasons why they're finished, you know, is we can talk about Ukraine. We can talk about, you know, the the, abs- the absolute humiliation of NATO literally emptying its arsenal um, to a proxy army only to have the Russians destroy it piecemeal. Um, the, that alone is a knockout blow. But the the thing that has killed NATO, that guarantees NATO will lose, is that it has full-heartedly expanded its expansionistic tendencies to the Pacific to take on China. Um, and it has labeled the Russian-Chinese alignment as a direct threat. Um, you know, what, what, what's happening here, and, and NATO has also uh, formally uh, come out and said, you know, this is a military alliance, but it has now, you know, adopted the language of, you know, the G7 and because they're the same. But uh, the, NATO is now saying that one of its missions is to, you know, defend the rules-based international order, mm-hmm. which is primarily an economic uh, order. Uh, but now we have a military alliance aligning with the rules-based international order, uh, putting itself in direct uh, opposition to uh, Russia, China's multipolar uh, vision of the world, which is a law-based international order uh, founded in the principles of the United Nations Charter. NATO has just declared war against the United Nations. NATO is going to lose. So is the West. So is the G7. The G7 foolishly has stated that uh, BRICS, this, uh, you know, the, the, the seven other nations besides, which is soon to become nine other nations, and soon after that, 11, 15, expanding, not because they're forcing it, because people want to join. Um, and they've, they've aligned themselves against BRICS. And so the G7 is at war against an economic alliance that will crush it, and NATO is now at war with a Russian-Chinese, um, you know, a partnership that will crush it. So it's over. It's all over. I mean, there's going to be a lot of screaming, a lot of gnashing of the teeth, wailing, pulling of the hair, maybe a lot of death, maybe the end of the world. But no matter what, NATO is not going to survive. It has committed suicide in Madrid. By adopting this language, the rules-based order, that is U.S. rhetoric. And, and to me, language is very, very important. So when in supposedly international organization uh, such as NATO adopts American rhetoric, that to me sends a very, very ominous sign. Well, it, it, it's the same thing as the G7 adopting it. The G7 is also adopting mm-hmm. the same thing, which tells you who's pulling, I right. mean, who's the puppet and who's the puppet master. This is purely about the United States using proxies, um, you know, to implement American policy. And so when I say NATO committed suicide, the United States has committed suicide. And, but we've known that for some time. I mean, we live here. Um, we see what's happening. Mm-hmm. We understand that, you know, the shining city on the hill ain't. We understand that, you know, the world's, um, you know, the, 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 the origin of all that's good in the world in terms of democratic, uh, you know, movements isn't. Uh, that the United States, unfortunately, is living a lie. Um, but that lie has 
manifested itself in the form of the G7 and NATO. And these two ostensibly international organizations um, have now bought into this lie in a way that's going to bring about their demise. And unfortunately, in the case of uh, both the G7 and NATO, this means that Europe is going down the sinkhole. Uh, it's, it, it's a sad state of affairs, but Europe has basically lost its chance to imprint uh, an independent European vision on the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. It has basically surrendered to you know, an American vision of how the world must operate. And that's what the rules-based international order is. It's an American-directed mm-hmm. um, you know, Amer- program simply to sustain American uh, hegemony across the world. So at NATO, Biden announces plans to ramp up U.S. military presence in Europe in response to the Ukraine war. And this comes out as CNN is reporting that there are those in the Biden administration who don't believe that the Ukraine has any chance of winning this war, yet still won't encourage any kind of negotiated settlement to end the bloodshed. Scott, is this the administration setting us up for all of this to become the next Afghanistan? Oh, but worse, yes. I mean, this is this. Look, <laughs> I, I, there is no amount of weaponry that can be provided to Ukraine by the United States and NATO that could change the ultimate outcome. Uh, that we could literally provide all the tanks in our arsenal everything in our arsenal. Hell, give them the F-35. Give them everything. Um, Russia will destroy it all. Russia is going to win this war. There is no way Russia can lose this war. That is the ultimate outcome. By piling on, all they're doing is guaranteeing that the victory parade in Moscow is going to have 40 miles worth of NATO equipment to parade before the Russian public. Um, this is, this is a humiliation, and it's only going to be a bigger humiliation. And this is, again, one of the reasons why I say this is a suicide pill. NATO cannot survive the humiliation that's about to be inflicted on it. And they may, you know, the, the, the problem is they probably won't wilt up and, and, and blow away into the wind like they should. They're probably going to double down on failure. I mean, this is like watching somebody in Vegas, mm-hmm. um, you know, put everything on red, lose it, and then think they can go out and mortgage everything, come back and put it all on black and win. You can't. Okay. You, you, when you go to Vegas and you play like that, Vegas wins. That's why they have big shiny chandeliers, and wonderful <laughs> carpets and air conditioning. They don't get that by giving you money. They get it by taking your money away. And so now NATO is doubling down with Finland and Sweden joining. Russia's made it clear that the moment NATO puts infrastructure on Finnish or Swedish soil, that changes everything. That of itself, they don't mind Finland and Sweden joining NATO. If they want to do that, so be it. But the moment NATO especially puts troops on Finnish soil, one only has to open up a history book and understand that the last time foreign troops were on Finnish soil was the Nazis, Germans, who then proceeded to surround Leningrad and kill a million uh, Soviet citizens to invade the North, threatening uh, you know Soviet ports. Um, Russia, Russia has said 
that will never happen again. We will never tolerate this again. So they're just setting themselves up for failure after failure after failure. And the one thing that is probably going to happen in the near future is there is going to be a test of Article 5 of the NATO Charter. Mm. And NATO will fail this test. Because Article 5 is not what Joe Biden says it is. It is not an automatic, hey, we all rush to you when you've been attacked. Mm -hmm. It is basically a statement that says, huh, you've been attacked. We're going to consider what has just happened and decide whether or not we want to get involved. We may just send you some tanks. You can become the new Ukraine. Or we'll send you our troops, maybe, if our people. We're going to consider it. There is no guarantee. And as NATO continues to behave like a rabid dog, um, you know, <laughs> to kill a mockingbird, man, you got a rabid dog in the street, the lawyer comes out with the gun, Atticus fits, and shoots it. NATO is a rabid dog, and it needs to be shot. And Russia is Atticus Fitch, and he's going to shoot him. And the rest of NATO is just going to sit there and say, yeah, that dog needed to die. That's why NATO has committed suicide, because it's becoming an organization that isn't worth dying for, and its members know that. You mentioned about Finland joining NATO. Another thing you need to look at is a map and look at the border that they share. And that'll give you another reason why this is not a good idea. Let me move to another point. President Putin authorized major POW swap. The defense ministry confirms the exchange of 144 troops with Ukraine. This I found interesting in terms of there are 144 soldiers handed over, all of whom were wounded or seriously wounded and have already been provided with necessary medical assistance. What does that signal to you? The fact that they talk about medical assistance kind of debunks all this myth about rabid Russians running all around and stabbing people and doing all kind of stuff. And then the other report that I wanted to quickly get to is Russian troops withdraw from Ukraine's Snake Island in goodwill gesture. Your, your thoughts on those two? We've got about three minutes. Well, on the POWs, I, I have to go back and read the story. My understanding is that the Russians received the wounded from the Ukrainians and that the Russians turned over people who were in good health. Um, and the reason why Russia did this is that uh, the Russians were suffering egregiously under Ukrainian okay. um, you know, uh, confinement and that the Russians said, we need to get our boys home and we need to get the medical treatment. But I'll go back and double check. I could be wrong on okay. that. No, I think on you're Snake right. Island, on Snake Island, um, you know, Russia made a point. They took the island. They held the island. They've destroyed uh, untold numbers of Ukrainian troops. But here's the issue. Uh, the other day, they, they lost a, a, a surface-to-air missile uh, battery. It got blown up, and some, some Russian soldiers died. And the Russian military is sitting there saying, you know, the longer we hold this island... The Ukrainians are scoring a, a um, propaganda victory because they're, they're saying, because you hold this island, we can't ship out our grain. We've proven we hold the island and we can take the island anytime we want to. So rather than sit here and allow the Ukrainians to you know, kill some Russian boys that don't need to die, we're just going to get out of there. We'll call it a goodwill gesture. Um, and you know, we'll put the, the ball back in the Ukraine's court on the grain shipments. Uh, but I think they decided they don't want to lose any more Russian boys for a piece of terrain that's absolutely useless to them right now. Okay. If and when Russia decides to take Odessa, I guarantee you the first thing they'll take is Snake Island. It will fall overnight. And 
with that, Scott Ritter, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and uh, we look forward to having you back. Well, thank you for having me. Folks, you've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing my voice into your space. I hope you were informed and enlightened, and I look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. I'm out.